I mean, I don't know what it's going to sound like for real when the people are listening, but hopefully they'll feel like they're right in the room with us. Yeah. Is that, that's is that the vibe that we're going for. I intimate, think. intimate. <laughs> and, and like we're whispering in the ear of our, of our listeners <laughs> sort of dirty. Um, yeah, I don't know. So, so podcasts, I, I'm, I'm kind of not a fan, you know, it's, it's, um, of podcasts in general. It's weird, right? Did you, like, see the, did you see the New York Times piece about how we've maybe reached peak podcast? I saw it. I mean, like so much these days, I see the headline and then I, tr- I, I just, that's the other horrible thing about the world today. I feel podcasts lead to that too, right? I mean, it's just a sort of, it, it encourages a kind of superficiality also. Yeah. Uh, it's an inefficient way to get information. <laughs> I read a lot faster than I could listen to people banter. And it's kind of like, you know, I mean, I understand why it's popular. Like it's for the same reason Twitter's popular. But I people, do use Twitter. I don't use podcasts. People but. probably won't listen to us for information, though. Like, it's not like, oh, let's listen to Demir and Shadi to learn information about the world, right? Yeah, they're probably they probably want to listen to us for other reasons. I don't know. Pres- <laughs> presumably, <laughs> that might be the case. <laughs> anyway, uh, Shadi, so you have a you got a you got a new article out in uh, in the Atlantic. Uh, I don't know. Just uh, say a few words about what you were trying to do. Uh, I mean, we'll 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 include a link so people can go read it for themselves. So don't necessarily walk through the thing. But I don't know. Say say, say a couple of things. What led to that? I almost don't want to say what it's about because I don't want to bias you. I want you to say what you think without any kind of priming on my part. But okay. maybe it does help to actually say what the article's about. Maybe, okay. maybe, 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 maybe for our, 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 our dear audience of five <laughs> at this point. So they. <laughs> so basically, um, you know, this new national conservative movement, which I think is really interesting. And they had their inaugural conference, I guess, a couple of weeks ago here in D.C. at the Ritz, of course. I mean, where else are you going to have the inaugural kind of like neo populist? Conference, but that's I think part of what they're trying to develop is this this right of center neo populism that is an intellectual expression of what Trump is or what he should be or what he could be, and to kind of give give Trumpism some intellectual coherence. Anyway, there was this one there was this one talk in the conference, uh, Amy Wax, she's a University of Pennsylvania law professor. I've had issues with things that she said in the past. I think that she has, she, she always seems to express this disdain, um, for, I don't know how to put it, uh, non-white people. And that's not to say, I I don't want to, I don't want to use the word racist because I think that actually, that gets us into a sort of not productive debate about what counts as racism. That's not the issue. I think the issue is how much does culture matter? So she talks basically in, um, at the conference, she talked about. Can I ask just to jump yeah. in for a second? Did you, did you read her remarks? Or did you listen to them? I was at the conference. I wasn't at her oh, panel. Right. You were, yeah, you were there. But the, 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 uh, the interesting thing for me is the extent to which uh, people were walking out of her panel, people I know, people you know, uh, on the journalist side, but also people who are sort of there, you know, as as uh, as participants. And they were they were taken aback at at the, you know, at, at how far she went, quite frankly, huh. and the language she used. I mean, that that she was pushing buttons. But I mean, continue so on. But like, actually walked out of her. Talk. No, no, no. I just I, I, I wasn't in it. I was at a, a parallel yeah. talk. Uh, people afterwards were telling me like, wow. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, she she, you know, 
it was it was a lot. Yeah, yeah. So, so did you did you listen to it or did you just read it? I mean, is my question. So I did not listen to it. I read the full transcript, transcript. which was available later. So she talks about using culture as a metric for immigration. And what that leads her to say is even if it's not the intent of the policy, the effect will be to have more whites than non-whites because people from the first world are more culturally similar than people from the third world. And if we're taking people from the first world, they're more likely to be white from a demographic standpoint. If So if we're if we're trying to encourage immigration from, I don't know, Norway or Sweden, because we think they're culturally similar to us, then, you know, they're probably going to be more white. Um, and so there was a, the controversy after was, I think, really interesting to watch because. So how do we feel? I guess one question is, how do we feel about something that is racist in effect, but not necessarily in intent? Because I think what a lot of cultural culturalist type conservatives they they want to they want to stay away from the racial distinctions but if they are going to go along this route of of prioritizing culture and and the idea there is that if you for immigration you want people who are um who are going to integrate or assimilate more easily yeah and if they if they share American values or American culture or Western culture or first world culture, then that's going to be better for cultural cohesion. Yeah. And that's the basic idea. Right. Right. And, and I mean, what was weird about I, I have, like I said, I wasn't at the talk and I, I haven't even gone back and, and, and read it, uh, her remarks. But but again, you know, from reading your piece and just in general, the chatter that has been around the what's what seems to me her shtick, right, is to just basically um uh transcode uh the word white into into culture so therefore you're not talking about race you're talking about culture and that that's that's all she's doing basically so i mean it, it's like it's 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 the ultimate dog whistle in a lot of ways right yeah. i mean it's it's she's she's dressing up this concept which would get her in trouble if she was just saying you know we want white people from europe because they're white uh she's just dressing it up and like well they share sort of cultural affinities and that's what it is or yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't, um, since I'm just kind of doing this, like, without reference to my article or without notes, but you, I think you have my article in front of you, Demir. Do you want to read the controversial passage that I cite in my yeah, piece? Yeah, hold just on so a sec. I, I have it somewhere. Let me pull it up. I have my own notes, but... Um... Okay, here it is. Here we go. Here okay, we go. go ahead. Ready? Ready? Okay, quote... Many, indeed most inhabitants of the third world, don't necessarily share our ideas and beliefs. Others pay lip service, but don't really comprehend them. There are exceptions, of course, but most people are not exceptional. Which is kind of like a clever way of putting it. And I think that that line in particular got some applause. I should also clarify, that's not me quoting myself. That's me <laughs> quoting Amy Wax. Right, right. Um, so she does this whole first world, third world thing too, which I think is also a little bit awkward. And she also refer she has this phrase that she uses, the legacy population, by which she means basically um, the uh, American whites, yeah. which is like a weird way of talking about white people. They're our legacy population. Um Okay, so that's the premise that she starts from. And this, this takes her to a conclusion, and I'll quote her again. So based on that premise, she concludes, quote, unquote, 
embracing cultural distance, cultural distance nationalism means in effect taking the position that our country will be better off with more whites and fewer non-whites. Well, that is the result anyway. So she's saying that that's how it will end up, even if we're not actually determining based on race explicitly. Obviously, I think that most most listeners will, will or whoever they are, will find that this is kind of problematic. But what I want to do in my piece was I don't care whether we call that racist or not. I want to judge it on its own terms. Yeah. So if your goal is to accept people into our country who are more culturally similar to us as Americans, then does Amy Wax's argumentation make sense, right? Yeah. And I want to challenge that because I don't think it makes sense on its own terms. It's incoherent. I think there's a kind of paradox because let's talk, for example, about um, – so. I would posit, and maybe Demir, you, you, I don't know if you'll, I think you'll probably agree. America is a liberal country. And I, I mean liberal here in the classical sense, sure. not in the partisan sense, yeah. that there is a constitutional liberal order that emphasizes certain non-negotiable rights and freedoms yeah. that are endowed yeah. by our creator. Or even if you don't believe in our creator, they're still sort of fundamental and central to the American idea. They're enshrined in the Bill of Rights, so on and so forth, right? But what what I think me and you have been talking about like for a long time, really since we've known each other, is the rise of illiberalism in Western democracies. And we see this primarily with the rise of right-wing populist parties in almost every Western and actually Eastern European country with maybe, there's maybe one or two exceptions. Uh, Portugal is like, the only country that I can really think of in, in Western Europe that hasn't had a significant uh, right-wing populist thing going on. So here's the thing. If we're going to prioritize immigration from the first world, how do we feel about supporters of right-wing populist parties who don't, who don't believe in liberalism the way that maybe many Americans do because they're anti-liberal, post-liberal, or illiberal. Yeah. Um, so let's take, for example, um, a member or supporter of the AFD in Germany, which is the major um, right-wing populist party there. I would say that's pretty outside of mainstream American culture. They're ethno-nationalist. Yeah. So if we accept them into our country, however white they may be, that, I would argue, would probably undermine cultural cohesion in America because they don't share the mainstream culture, at least the mainstream elite culture. And this is where I get into a bigger issue is that there is no such thing as a shared understanding of American culture. So if we're, if we're doing immigration based on culture, then the question is, whose conception of culture do we privilege? Who decides what American culture is in the first place? Yeah, no, I mean, look, I think it's it's a it's a clever argument. Uh, the thing that 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 struck me about it is that, to a certain extent, I feel like your 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 uh, um, your conception of culture. I, I don't want to say that you're playing on her turf and then and then and then going at it, but I think I think it's insufficient, kind of, or at least or at least sort of not not compelling enough to to play the role that I think we 
we want to talk about when we talk about mm-hmm. culture. And I, I mean, I, I want to sort of quiz you about that because that to me is the, the, the interesting thing. Like, so it's sort of in the article, but walk me through a little bit more of what you think American culture is specifically. Uh, not, not the, the, uh, you know, lowest common denominator, as you say, sort of, you know, minimal liberalism, minimal democracy, or maybe that is what you think. I mean, I, you know, in our conversations, you've sort of alluded to that, but is that, is that enough? Um, and I, I just answer that one for me and then I'll, we'll talk a bit more because I, I, I want to sort of push you in some other directions on that. Okay. What is American culture? Well, I think we can talk about what American culture maybe was or what it what it was intended to be at the founding. And that's where I do think there is a classical liberal conception, which is very central, which doesn't which is very anti-ethno-nationalist. And, uh, you know, the founders um, did not talk about an ethno-nationalist conception of the state for them. There was always even if they didn't always take it to where we've taken it in modern times, there was a sense that America was an idea and that it should be open. And this is sometimes referred to as creedal nationalism, that if you believe in the creed, then you can be American. Yeah, I mean, people have argued that that's a more modern thing, that that wasn't necessarily there with the founders, but but fair enough. But at Go least on. the idea of America as an idea. And one can extrapolate it from yeah. the founders, even if it wasn't explicitly there, right? Okay, fair enough. Go on. And then there, there were changes in our constitution, which did actually enshrine um, basically unrestricted birthright citizenship that happened in the 19th century. Um, so it didn't happen right away. So birthright citizenship was not there from our founding. But I would say that when I think about what, um, how I grew up with the idea of America as, as something, as an aspirational kind of thing, I think the idea that anyone could become American if they signed on to a certain shared understanding of liberty and freedom and the quality of all citizens before the law, so on and so forth. And, you know, I've seen that I've seen that process with my with my parents who who um, who I guess were immigrants and are maybe still technically immigrants, but are American citizens. And maybe this is where I'm a little bit biased because I have my own particular conception of the American idea and I've seen, I think it's a beautiful thing. And maybe, the, Demir, I, I can almost imagine you being like, there Shaddy goes again with his idealism and his American this and whatever. But um, to watch my parents become American fully, they they have no doubt about their own American identity. They feel American. They've become American. So I think to me, those those components of it are quite important. Right. But again, so so... This is this is, I think, critical, uh, and I'll, I'll I'll tip my hand in a sec. But tell me again, what do you mean by your parents <laughs> becoming American? Because um, they believe in the American. They're they're. Loyal. Do they just believe in like birthright citizenship? I mean, there's a there's a sentence in your in your essay, and I don't have it in front of me right mm. now, but something along the lines of that that it's it's birthright citizenship is is sort of key to the American idea. Yes. I mean, but there's more than that, presumably, or. Is that like, again, the, the, the lowest common well, denominator look, and that's mean, all you need? Birthright citizenship isn't just a policy or a position or one thing to support. It signifies something greater. And to me, what it signifies is this idea of a non-ethno-nationalist state, that we're basically an ideas-based state or an ideological state, but not ideology in the kind of like right-wing populist sense, right. but ideology in that... Um, you know, uh, a kind of 
a broad conception that is pluralistic and open to different cultures and ethnicities. And that's what ultimately ends up pushing the question of ethnicity to the side that it doesn't, it shouldn't matter if you're Arab, black, white, Jewish, whatever, as long as you, um, you believe in the American idea. Now we no longer agree on what the American idea is as Americans. And that's part of the problem that I try to explore in the piece. Um, I mean, I, what's, what's, important about the piece is I think the, the the difference between the sort of the European concept of belonging, which really is, I mean, you know, the fact that they don't have birthright is is a testament to the the, the real blood and soil nature of these things, right? I mean, I, I always like uh, citing the, 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 the sort of anecdotal story. You know, my uncle has been living in Austria for the longest time, and, you know, I he has a daughter there, and, and I, and it's, he has citizenship and, and the rest of this, but it's, it's, uh, you know, you have a Slavic name, even if you speak, uh, perfect German, you're, you're always going to be marked within that society as somehow the other. And that's just, I think, the nature uh, across a lot of Europe. That's just sort of a, a fact of how these societies work. Even as they modernize, even as, even as Europe becomes, you know, uh, the borders come down to a certain extent. I mean, that's still a reality. I think a lived reality. Exactly. Kind of and so, so if you're an immigrant to, um, to Denmark, for example, um, you can't really become Danish in the way that you can become American because to be Danish is intrinsically linked to some extent with being indigenous to Denmark. If you're a newcomer, then you might be a Danish citizen or you might acquire citizenship later on. But are you Danish? Like, no, we don't have that same kind of debate. Um, if you become an American citizen, no one really questions at least for most people don't question whether or not you're really American. I mean, maybe our president questions that. Right. But that's where I think Donald Trump himself is somewhat outside of American culture because he actually wants to bring, and I think this is true for Amy Wax as well, they're trying to bring what I would consider to be a more European conception of the state and society and superimposing it on America. And to me, that's not, I mean, that's not American culture. No, I agree. Look, the, the, the interesting thing, I think that's exactly the where I think you're playing on her turf. And so let me just sort of get at what mm-hmm. I what I what I what I uh, uh, want to sort of suggest. Um, you also point out at one point that, uh, you know, the the uh, end result of the sort of European idea uh, of belonging is one of forced assimilation. I, let me let me throw this out to you. Um, and this is in terms of, you know, I think when most uh non sort of instinctively people talk about these things, not people who are thinking about this or writing about it, but just in general. There, I think what used to exist in this country, and it existed arguably uh, at a time of a lot of, you know, racial injustice, which makes it complicated, but there existed a kind of, call it uh, a hegemonic identity maybe, you know? I mean, I think this is what people would call... Uh, whiteness now in terms. But I feel like that's racializing it to a certain extent because, you know, obviously, you know, in the, in the 20s and 30s, you had uh, uh, the, the, uh, the bills about limiting immigration and, and the entire idea that certain people that, in fact, are very much currently today white, Italians, Irish. I saw somewhere on Twitter, someone pulled up on my Slavic Twitter, someone <laughs> pulled up a, uh, uh, some bill or something uh, talking about Slavs as, as you know, non-white very explicitly. Okay. Um, but the interesting thing uh, about, call it, um, that period, that if you somehow, you know, step aside from that real ugliness, 
maybe the, the mechanism for what was happening was one of when you become an American, uh, and you are, you struggle for a while, there's discrimination, but there's also actually a kind of forced assimilation into an idea of America, which actually was part and parcel of this sort of hegemonic thing. So basically, you had uh, immigrants that would shed their particularisms to a certain extent. Second, third, fourth generation Italian Americans are sort of, you know, they'll celebrate Christopher Columbus Day. And I'm not saying today, I'm saying back in the day, celebrate Christopher Columbus Day, eat some pasta, have a, a sort of lingering sort of thing. But they, they, they're they shedding it for this 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 identity that exists, which I think in today's in the parlance of today would be a white oppressive identity. But I think what's lost in this, and I don't know, uh, react to this, but I think what's lost in here, what's happened today is that um, given the all the injustices that that you know are real in American history, um, we have now a concept of uh, this sort of hegemonic identity, which is one that is tainted, that needs to be overcome, and you have this sort of uh, um, almost like self-loathing aspect to it, which is tied to this concept of celebrating diversity rather than you know uh, encouraging assimilation. I, I, that to me feels like what's happening here. And this is what I guess, again, I ask you, I mean, do you, do you think that there is something to that as, you know, the American idea that maybe we've lost this idea that you do have to sort of, you know, shed some of your particularisms and become again, quote unquote, becoming white. Again, I, this is hard to say because of, yeah, you know, because yeah. of the racial question, because African-Americans have been systematically oppressed and the rest of this, but Asians, will they become white? Will Arabs become white? Arguably. And so, by white, it's yeah. it's the idea, the American idea. I don't know. React to that for me a little bit. So I'm torn on this. You know, like, neither of us are big fans of identity politics. So I feel like I'm always somewhere weirdly in between in these kinds of debates, which makes it hard. Because I'm. It's. it might seem like I'm a little bit inconsistent in my approach. But that's because I'm struggling with this in real time. Um, look, I guess I'd say maybe in, in an ideal world, you'd want to have some assimilationist power. You'd want to have a dominant culture that stands out and then people see that dominant culture and they feel maybe not a coercive pressure, but some kind of incentive structure where they want to join into that. An aspirational, that broader, an aspirational yeah. aspect to it. You know, I wonder if I asked my parents, like when my dad uh, moved to um, Oklahoma, which is the first American state that he lived in in the 70s, like I wonder if he really, did he, did he feel that? Did he feel like this melting pot pressure where he has to melt into the rest? I don't, I mean, I don't know. Um, I just feel like some of this is on an intellectual level, but when you actually talked about talk about people's lived experiences before all this identity politics hullabaloo, did they really feel a lot of pressure? To, did my dad ever feel that he, he should or had to become white or there was this dominant white culture? I don't think so. I mean, have you had conversations even, I mean, not, not that direct, but have you had conversations about about a sense of trying to preserve uh, his own sort of culture and the struggles therein. I mean, so sort of obstacles be, to that. Because my parents, my parents were and and still are <clears throat> religious, 
Um, I think that that has colored how I view this melting pot thing. That to me, part of what was what is and was so appealing about the American immigrant ideal is that no one told my dad in the 1970s or in the 80s when he became a citizen if I, um, that he had to give up his religious practices. No one said that choose between being Muslim or being American. To him, I think it was always self-evident that you could be both simultaneously and there wasn't this kind of trade-off, right? right, right. Now, I think that... Now that wasn't always the way it was, and if we go, try to if we go like early twentieth century, there there, you know, as far as far as I can tell, there was more of this assimilationist pressure. I mean, some people did hold on to their religious particularities, Catholics. I mean, you know, in a Protestant culture, again, yeah. I mean, but there still was that pressure pressure where Catholics felt and Jews, yeah. Catholics and Jews felt that they had to kind of pay tribute to a certain kind of dominant culture. And even if we look at the kinds of things that JFK had to say when he was um, when he was running for office, that he had to reassure the dominant WASP culture that he was not a threat to that culture, so on and so forth. Um, I don't know. Then, then the question becomes: Is there a kind of which? So then, it, then it's which American culture are we kind of elevating? Because all of these are different components of what our culture is, and it depends really what we want to what we want to emphasize. No, I think it is. I mean, it, it specifically it strikes me that today we're 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 in a shift of emphasis, right? Mm. Um, and and you know, I don't know how to put it. I, this is something I've just picked up in, in discussions. I'm not I'm not I'm not citing anything in particular because this is not really my bailiwick. But but you know, I've I've heard it's sort of said and described that the American project is one that, you know, requires a certain kind of religiosity, if not a religion. So there's, it's never been, there's never been an established church. That's from the beginning, but it, there has been a, you know, uh, a kind of, you know, religious attitude uh, that, that, you know, entails Americanism. Uh, so, you know, freedom of religion, I think, does sort of play into that, that, you know, it's, it's that, that level of, of pluralism is encouraged as long as you also have a sort of a belief in the American idea. And it's, it's a kind of religious belief. It seems to me that, that like what's happened now is that from a positive belief in the American idea, we have a kind of, I don't know, an idea of, and I mean, this is actually much more Christian than, 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 uh, than Islamic, but this idea of uh, that America needs to be redeemed, right? And I mean, it, it comes back to, I mean, all the, the sort of weird iconography and ideas around, around uh, Lincoln, that, you know, Lincoln basically saves the American project by doing that. And like Christ on Easter, he's killed, you know, and, and, and all this sort of weird stuff that happens. But I think that's, that's part and parcel that in the 60s, on the left in particular, it was this idea that grew, that, that America is a, is a, is a, sinful idea that nevertheless is capable of rejuvenating itself. And I don't know, it seems like as this has become more and more mainstream, this is this idea of, of America as something to aspire to has been replaced by America as maybe an ideal up there that we can strive for, but we have to sort of constantly be questioning and fixing what's inherently broken and fallen about ourselves. That seems to me that, you know, insofar as that we've We've switched. We've switched to that, and 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 it strikes me that that a lot of the reactionary stuff that's happening, um, yeah, 
And, you know, what gets marked as, uh, you know, white people rebelling, uh, racism, white nationalism, I think the softer version of that, if one wants to maybe, you know, be sympathetic and understand what people are reacting to, uh, it strikes me that has something to do with it. That something that that is what's been lost. It's not. And again, you know, a, a critic would say, well, that's obviously, you know, white hegemony has been lost. Now deal with it. America's no longer a white country. But it's a little more complicated. I'm trying to get at something a little more nuanced yeah, think, there. Look, you know, that idea of America being sinful is foreign to me because when I think about America, um, <clears throat> I. I think about America as a kind of evangelical state. And I, I use that in a kind of, not in the sense of Christian evangelical, but we have something to share with the world. And there is a kind of um, self-regard regard, regarding our exceptionalism. And I know that, uh, you know, maybe that we, we might differ a little bit on how much that should be emphasized, but I, I feel it too when I go abroad. So when I've, you know, lived in, in, um, I guess what once was Europe. So when I lived in the UK, I don't know if that's Europe anymore, but in the Middle East as well, it was interesting that when I spent time with European expats or French, German people, whatever it might be, who were living abroad themselves, they would always comment on how, on how I don't want to say aggressively American, but they really felt my Americanness and they felt that it was different to what they felt because I... I do think the American idea is better. And I don't know if, I don't even know if we're supposed to say that anymore. Uh, like, are we, you know, to say that we're better than other, than other kind of nation states or cultural ideas or whatever it might be. Um, <clears throat> but I think that's sometimes a part of the immigrant experience that I feel in some sense more strongly about America and what I think we should stand for abroad than many of my white counterparts, at least in my own personal experience, kind of living in different places, right? And I like the idea of America being, well, thankfully not a lot of people are going to be listening to this podcast, so I can just say whatever. But <laughs> but I kind of do like the idea of America being a missionary state. Mm -hmm. um, and like, the, the funny thing about political correctness is that it's so constantly changing that sometimes I don't even know if what I'm saying is acceptable. Right, right. Like, I don't know. Is that like a controversial thing to say? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. I, I you know, I mean, it, it gets back to that, that thing that, well, I don't know. I, I just say that I, I think we're, we're a lot healthier as a society than we're giving ourselves credit for right now. I, I, you know, I, I think that the internet's really distorting of this sort of stuff. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. just because you'll have a bunch of jackasses yelling at you on Twitter for that, it doesn't, it doesn't actually matter. I, I, so, and yeah. Well, yeah, go on. Well, let me take this idea of religion from like a different perspective. So if you talk to white evangelicals today in America, they will, they will um, lament the secularization of American society and that we are replacing Christianity with a kind of woke, a woke high church, right? Okay, yep. so that's a crit right. That to me introduces a lot of co internal contradictions in what I think folks from what was previously the dominant culture say, because they, so, so one criticism of like, let's say Muslims in Europe and the kind of high rates of Muslim immigration to Europe is that 
Muslims disproportionately in Europe are anti-gay. They don't fully sign on to gender equality. They don't fully sign on to sexual freedom. And that's the European conversation, at least in Western Europe. So in France, Germany, Denmark, Sweden, so on and so forth. What's interesting is that the very people who don't want to sign on to precisely those things in America are are white evangelicals and, and white Christians more generally, right? So then you get into this like weird situation where what do they really want American Muslims to do? Do they want American Muslims to hold on to their Islam and not support gay marriage, just like white evangelicals still a majority don't support gay marriage, which is ve- that's very different than the conversation that you have in Europe. And I think sometimes we say, well, oh, like, but but then it's weird because I, I have heard white evangelicals ask why Muslims, um, why can't Muslims assimilate more? And by that, they sort of mean become more secular and be less distinctly Islamic or Muslim or whatever. They don't realize how contradictory their own discourse is because they don't like the mainstream liberal culture. But then they're also sort of wondering why Muslims don't integrate better into that mainstream liberal culture in a way. Does that, does that make sense? Totally makes sense. I mean, we can unpack that in a sec, but tell me a little bit, I, what are stats uh, on sort of social issues among uh, American Muslims? I I'm, not, I'm not even aware of that. Like how, how many have embraced the sort of social issues? So the fascinating thing is that, and I, I actually have a, um, a longer piece coming out in Plow magazine, which is actually like a really cool magazine it's part of the Bruderhof community, which is one of the intentional Christian communities. And it's a, this kind of magazine that tries to explore some of these deeper religious questions. Uh, how do you, how do people live religious and in secular societies? And um, there's some really interesting pew polls on this where in around 2007, if I recall, only about something like 25% of American Muslims believed that homosexuality was acceptable in society. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it, then it went up as of just a couple of years ago. Um, it's gone up to more than 50%. And M- American Muslims are generally on board with same-sex marriage and with gay rights at higher levels than white evangelicals. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. I think that actually speaks to the power of the American integrationist ideal. And this isn't to say that Muslims are giving up on their religious beliefs. And you might actually, there's this interesting development in the American Muslim community where people, uh, where Muslims individually are conservative in that they would still say that according to the Islamic tradition and Islamic law, homosexuality is not permissible. It's still technically haram would be the word, right? But they distinguish between that and their public position because they say that that is not relevant for American public policy because America is not governed by Islamic law. It's governed by secular law. Therefore, constitutional prerogatives take precedence. And therefore, you can have people, and I know several of these people, who say that they believe that homosexuality is sinful, but they support gay marriage. Mm. You know, that's to me. That's that's kind of cool, right? That you can kind of hold those seemingly contradictory positions. That's the thing, you know. I mean, uh, 
the, the late, great Peter Berger, who used to write for us at, at the American yeah. Interest, is a, really is one of the, the great privileges of working at the magazine, being able to work closely with him towards the end of his life. Uh, I believe his last book was really uh, uh, talking about modernity and how, how uh, you know, uh, very, very observant and, and uh, no-nonsense believers, in fact, are capable of, you know, reconciling their beliefs, very literalist beliefs in certain cases, with uh, the demands of modern society, and that, that that's just a facet of modernity, which, you know, sort of gets gets to, to sort of the other thing I was thinking of as you were just talking. Um, Tucker Carlson spoke at that at that uh, conference, yeah, that, that yeah. National Conservatism Conference, and I, you know, I mean, I, I quite frankly, I, I, I don't remember much of what he said. It was it was it was a whole bunch of whatever. Uh, but the the. Um, the interesting thing he said at one point, and I didn't note that, uh, he said, I don't have a politics, I just have reactions. And, <laughs> he, and he said that? He literally said that. And and that to me in so many ways is really clarifying to a lot of, you know, that, that contradiction you just pointed out among sort of uh, religious conservatives vis-a-vis Muslims demanding both that, you know, you shed your, your, your beliefs to assimilate into some kind of perhaps secularism uh, and at the same time, you know... Um, uh, wanting to have these sort of uh, illiberal, you know, yeah. beliefs, socially conservative beliefs, um, it's 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 a it's a facet of 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 you know not a really considered conservatism, but a, I mean what we really can call reactionary thought, right? I mean it's 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 a lot of sort of um, that like dislike this, and it's not heavily considered. I think there are a lot of contra- contradictions in what's going on. What's interesting. For whatever reason, it's um, – and I, I haven't figured this out. I mean, I feel like we're all sort of trying to figure out why does this have a uh, more political traction today um, as a, as a uh, you know, determinant of voting preferences more so than it would have earlier? And I mean there's, there's tons of answers. We can talk about it for – Well, I'd uh, be curious to hear a little bit more about what you think – because I actually think that Tucker Carlson is – he tries at least to be a little bit more intellectually. He's thinking through what his positions are. Um, I, I think that what he's saying is probably accurate for most people, that instinct matters and emotions matter. Um, and I think that's what's actually quite appealing about Trumpian populist thought is that it speaks to something that's deep within. I think almost all of us, we get angry, we get frustrated even I get angry at so-called centrist elites, and but I, I come out, I, but I end up more on the left uh, in terms of how I want to react to central centrist elites. But you know, um, and that's what I think. I think we all saw. I mean, at least me and you, we saw this before Trump was elected. We were. Uh, I don't want to say we were spellbound by him, but I think we saw something, and we. We didn't know how to put it into words, we, but we saw something that was deep and visceral and spoke to the moment. And we're like, damn, this is really some interesting shit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, even if it's bad. And to say that it's bad almost like, you know, what is that? Like, fine, it's bad. We get it. But it understands something about who we are. Like, Biden, like does Biden understand something? Like Kamala Harris, does she understand something about who we are? Trump does. Sure. Well, you're right. How do I, you know, I, I, you know, my turn to be really conflicted about it, right? It's, it's, it's that 
I think Trump has uh, managed to harness um, sort of a, a lived reality that I think we've all started inhabiting already towards the end of the Obama era, which is, I think, again, fueled by technology, fueled by how we interact, fueled by how we consume the world and, you know, inter- like get the world into our heads, um, which is is this sort of, you know, at a, at a really rapid pace that requires a kind of reaction. And it's it's much less considered. I don't know. You know, I, I've, I've, I'm struggling because it's hard to uh, do it, you know, working at a publication to step aside from Twitter. I've dropped Facebook. Um, I'm not on Instagram. Um, trying Man, to leave. Demir, more- you're a Luddite. Yeah, true. No, but, you know, I'm trying to, like, get away from all of this to, 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 to you know, take it more slowly. I think what, what Trump got was that moment but, you know, the more sort of, and that's why the, 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 the National Conservatism um, Conference, uh, I think, yielded something that's incoherent is because as you try and sort of put a, a frame on Trumpism, um, there's, there's a lot of incoherence because it's a lot of sort of reaction. It's not, it's not a coherent set of things. And I think, I think Trump and, quite frankly, Ocasio-Cortez uh, is is good at capturing that. That's why they are the politicians of the moment. Uh, they're able to to channel that. But you know, it's uh, uh, you know uh, my 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 colleague Aaron Sibarium's piece about uh, Legutko. Uh, Great piece, really good. Piece. Really good piece. And I think you know it's he he's got a piece coming out on uh, one of the Claremont uh, 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 publications uh, talking about um, oh the American Mind. Yeah, I think it's in the yeah. American mind. He's got something coming out uh, grappling with um, uh, none other than our, our friend Adrian Vermeule. And again, very similarly to how he, he goes uh, at it with Legutko, I think, you know, if you start pulling at these things and really, you know, get at them, there's, there's, it, doesn't, it doesn't fully add up in a satisfying way. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of emotional assertions, which is what Trump and Ocasio-Cortez and Twitter and our political discourse is about. Um, but there was something maybe about the, the pace of things before that allowed a kind of different a different priorities to emerge. But that, guess, that sounds kind of yeah, phobiaish no, and, and, and yeah. But I guess it raises the question, do we need to aspire to coherence? <laughs> like we're almost assuming that like to be incoherent is to be is to be bad, right? Like they have to fix that incoherence, right? But maybe Maybe that's kind of the point. It's meant, it's not meant to be coherent, whatever this new thing is. I mean, I would just, when I was hearing what you were just saying, listening to it, um, I'll just, I'll, you know, maybe I'll just speak more personally. And we've had some of these discussions <laughs> in private, so yeah. in our like group chats and all that stuff. But, you know, you know how I feel about the paradox of choice. Mm. Like, even like, I think that. Look, I have challenges in my life, but I generally like I don't want to say like I'm happy because I feel like that's almost like a weird thing to say. Like, what does that even mean to be happy? And like, is that even a good thing? Yeah. Don't eat like that's a whole different conversation. But I think I'm generally I feel good about at least, you know, some or most of the things in my life right now. That said, lo- and I'm blessed and I'm grateful for, for the things that I have. Um, and, uh, but 
But life feels overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And I think that even people who are happy or otherwise happy feel like something's not quite right. And I think all these reactionary type people are speaking to this. We we don't always know how to put it into words, but something doesn't feel right. Oh, I agree. Like we don't want to like this is not the way we want to live. Right. I don't want to live this way. Right. I mean, I, what's interesting to me is no. And, and I, I agree that that a lot of this new politics is tapping into that. Um, it's interesting, though, and I think this should be our role is to pick apart these things and and look at whether satisfying that that itch of screaming, boy, this is screwed up and boy, this is not right. And this, this is not me making excuses for, uh, you know, the sort of status quo. I mean, I, I think there, there has been a real uh, hollowing out like uh, there's a, a sense of, of rot and, and decrepitude in what came before. And this is part of the reaction to all of that. But it's not being replaced by by something else. Maybe maybe it's a, a amount of time until it does. I'm not I'm not uh, pessimistic and ultimately declinist about all of this. We're just not there yet, and I'm not seeing um, necessarily a uh, a coherent reaction. I mean, we, maybe we can talk about this in a in a future episode uh, because we could actually be here all night talking about this. <laughs> But, you know, it's an interesting question about 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 whether, you know, uh, the left's answers, the left's uh, reactionary answers are more coherent uh, or more satisfying. And I know that uh, to a large extent you are more open to to sort of reimagining things from the from the hard left. And I haven't spent enough time thinking through Mm. the implications. I spent more time thinking through the implications of the sort of wish list of the right right now. And having sort of concluded that it doesn't really amount to something that I think you can build on, um, but I think that's 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 sort of the the thing that we need to be thinking about. Now, you know, this is not to say that that what came before, even though I was sort of nostalgic for this pre-internet time when the pace was slower, this doesn't mean that that I'm apologizing for the hollowing out of the of the status quo before Trump, if you will, before this crisis across the West. Um, but it's 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 uh, it's to say that what's replaced it, I don't think is positively creative. It's still destructive right now. It's still tear it all down. Don't worry about you know the fact that there are contradictions all in all of this. I, I think that's where I'm coming from at this point. Hmm. So, and um, it, it's funny because I don't think we actually when we started this we didn't say how long we wanted to go. Well, just so you know, <laughs> just so you know, Shadi. We're at 47 minutes already. Oh, my God. Wow. That's right. That's incredible. It honestly feel it doesn't feel like that. I'm sure our, our, our <laughs> listeners, if they're still there. <laughs> There's literally no one who's listening to this right now. Well, right now, no. But that's the beauty of time shifting. We're not live. Go oh on. Oh, my Charlie. God. So I think that one idea that I think recurs in a lot of this conservative reactionary thought. When I say reactionary, I also want to clarify. I'm not saying that pejoratively. I'm just saying it descriptively. Descriptively, me too. There's nothing, and I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with reacting to something in the moment. And I think we all do that. So, but I, I do think that a lot of like, whether it's Amy Wax or the culturalists or people who are talking about culture in perhaps problematic ways, I think they're speaking to a sense that diversity is overwhelming and we have too many choices and what they want to do 
is to restrict our choices. And um, I was actually at a panel, uh, speaking on a panel at BYU uh, last month with Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things Magazine. And the the title of the panel was Religion in the Crisis of Belonging. Mm. But basically what I said to this like BYU crowd, like older, and I don't know how much they knew what I was talking about, but I actually think dating apps like capture this in a certain way. So like basically what Tinder does, it gives you the illusion of infinite choice. Like for the first time in the history of humankind, this app is telling us that we can theoretically have anyone. But of course, well, no, like people throughout the world and like you, you can find them on the app. Still got to win them over. You yeah, but have uh, them. <laughs> right? No, no, you, ha- you don't have, you have infinite choice, not choice. them, but like you have, you have the ability to kind of like see who else is out there. Sure. And other, these are people that you would never otherwise have a chance to meet. Like an infinite bar, basically. Right? Yeah. Like a bar. Like with you a- think to yourself is like, is you're the one, someone who lives like, I don't know. Well, well, I, it's still within, I mean, unless you're setting it to like <laughs> 1,000 miles and having these like long distance dating things that you're still, it's still within your town, presumably. That's no, true. I, I take your point, but, but basically, it's like giving you the illusion of infinite choice sure. without any of the substance because these are the vast majority of people are people that you won't match with or people who even if you match with them, you won't meet because like, so it's, it, there's something very... Um, it raises expectations in a way that I think is fundamentally unhealthy about yeah, what is yeah. what is possible in this world, That's right? right? Yeah. Um, and I think that that mess that fucks with people. Mm, I agree. I agree. No, I think I think that gets at a lot. Quite frankly, it's it's it's. I think technology has uh, changed expectations of what's possible. In politics, let's just stick to politics. I mean, but I think Tinder is a good sort of parallel that I think maybe gets at that. Um, yeah, like why should I? Like why should I get married? Like uh, <laughs> why should you marry someone? Yeah. in your in your group of friends or who are like like the tiers beyond your group of friends, the people that you would meet naturally, because that's normally what you would do. You would have a very kind of a constrained like these are the people I'm going to meet in the city that I live in. And let me find someone in that world, right? No, but again, but it's it's fake, right? It's an illusion of 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 uh, of, uh, of infinite choice to a certain extent. I mean, it's it expands your choice for sure, and it 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 uh, makes it more efficient than having to you know go to bars and and be a, a bar fly like hunting hunting prey. But but <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, the. Uh, it also, on the flip side, it's it 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 tells you that um, you know your your choice and preferences matter in some sort of transcendent way than than they do. It empowers a sort of sense of individualism and entitlement, I think, and and it's it's uh, to a certain extent. I, I do think a lot of those things are unhealthy, especially you know. Uh, Again, this is one of those ideas that keeps kicking around, but it's this what technology has done for expectations of what's possible in, in a democracy. I think it's pushing democracies to reject a certain kind of uh, uh, representational element to it and in favor of a more direct, unmediated thing. Um, 
all of those things are 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 impacting and and I think creating this this uh, this current moment. I'm not I'm not I'm not sure it's good. Yeah. Yeah. This is I think where you know there's also what what the the illusion of infinite choice can impart on people is a sense of deserving something that they don't in fact deserve. So if you think about the whole incel movement, these are like for our readers uh, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> Because <laughs> they probably won't read a transcript of this. We could. We could transcribe this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I guess incels is like a pretty common term now. But these are people who um, like aren't, uh, I guess, aren't having sex, but think they that society owes, owes it, it to them. them yeah. That they should be having sex in some normative sense, right? right? Um, and I think that that that's that creation of expectations beyond what should naturally be your, like that's not the way people thought about it. I think like we don't know for sure because we weren't alive then, but in the pre-modern era, there wasn't that sense of deserving and also deserving something that wasn't yours. And then when you think you deserve something that isn't yours, there is a resentment that develops accordingly when you can't have that. Yeah. Look, I mean, I just it, it just brings it back though. Again, I think what what it is is like going back to the idea of culture, this idea of belonging, and this idea of aspiring to you know and assimilating. I think I think it's like we we we're we're shedding all of that in favor of a certain kind of individualism, um, and that's at at the heart of identity politics. It's it's individualism gone awry. It's this idea that that you know your 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 inner truth needs to be actuated somehow. Rather that, in fact, like what is becoming socialized, what is becoming a part of a whole is, is I think, becoming and belonging and aspiring to and getting there, getting, becoming part of this thing. Again, it's not, it's not either or. It's not, you know, and, and across different societies, you know, the, the role of the individual is, is, is differently valorized, right, across cultures. But I do think that, that where we're at today is a kind of uh, the pendulum's gone in this direction. And I think it's been swinging in this direction since the 60s. It's become mainstreamed. And it's, 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 not, it's not what it was, and it doesn't feel but, perfectly But healthy. Demir, like, yeah. uh, I mean, what people don't want to hear is that your inner truth does not matter. Correct, yeah, that's right. Like, literally, Demir, your inner truth is irrelevant. Correct. <laughs> Whatever that, it might be. That is correct, I agree. But like, here's the thing, like, but I mean, you know, the, the, what, but what, what are we talking about then? I mean, we're not, we're not nihilists. I mean, stuff exists out there and this is, I mean, it really is about socializing. But I guess it's more like the phrase inner truth also suggests a certain level of, you know, again, like I don't want to idealize the pre-modern societies or communities, which is just a kind of lead in to say that that's probably what I'm about to do. Right. <laughs> but like the idea of an inner truth did not exist in previous eras. Sure. Like the, the language wasn't even there for it. Right. And I, I think that I know that's a case certainly like in Arabic, but certainly I'm pretty sure it's a case in English. Um, like I, that's a weird phrase, even inner truth. But um, and I don't want to suggest to our listeners that Arabic is not my first language. English is. But I mean, because I work on, you know, issues having to do with Islamic history and the classical tradition in, in Islam and Islamic philosophy and things like that, like that, that's not something that we had that 
Muslim societies had language for then, right? Um, and because the idea of the inner truth suggests that there is something about the individual that is apart from the normative architecture of pre-modern society. And in that normative architecture, there was something that was supreme beyond the individual. Right. And that was this overarch overarching conception of Islamic law, Islamic norms, Islamic tradition that superseded yeah. the individual's like whims or whatever. So, you know, um, and there's like really interesting cases in, in um, the, the, the classical, like in, in, classical Islamic society where you had some prominent philosophers and intellectuals who would maybe drink wine um, in private, but they would still up, uphold norms in the public. They would uphold the prohibition against wine drinking. And because they understood that your inner truth or whatever you felt like doing as an individual, that was one thing. But what mattered more was the normative the normative aspects of the community and what the community is or what it should be, right? Right. No, so again, just to sort of circle back to the to the beginning on, on this, uh, let me push you on it again. Uh, is there, is there, uh, is there an American community that is more than just you can belong here if you know you choose to belong here? Is it is there anything deeper? And are we as has the pendulum swung in an in an unhealthy direction? Okay. So I think I don't think it's illegitimate to talk about culture. I don't like I'm against the way that Amy Wax talks about it. As I said, I think she's just she's yeah. just mapping race and her yeah, just mapping race onto, onto culture. this concept, this new concept of culture. Yeah. But I think the concerns around cultural cohesion and how much a society can absorb. Those are legitimate questions that we can't just say, oh, that's just bigotry. Yeah. Because, you know, also it's worth noting that most, even, even um, I don't know if it's the majority of modern societies, it could actually be, that don't actually have permissive immigration regimes. For them, culture is everything. Like Japan is a good example of this. Or I don't know how many people want to immigrate to Indonesia, but it's hard to become Indonesian. Yep. It's almost impossible to become Egyptian if you're not already Egyptian. And, you know, uh, you know, speaking as someone who is American but of Egyptian origin, that's like an interesting question to me. Like, what does it... Being Egyptian is a very culturally exclusive thing. And I assume it's the same for some of the countries that you focus on, Demir. I mean, can you become Croatian? Yeah, I mean, we can, <laughs> we'll be here for another hour if you want to do that. But, but yeah, but go like, on. So these, like, we're, most societies are at a very different place than we are. Some societies are zero immigration countries, or at least zero immigration in the sense that if you if you move to a country, you will never become a citizen of that country, no matter what you do. Saudi Arabia, you cannot become Saudi. Sure. 
Look, Shadi, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to uh, belabor the point. I mean, I, I I'm, I'm, <laughs> Please I'm, belabor no, it. but I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a recent immigrant. You're born here. I, I emigrated here. So I, I, I get it. I feel it. You know, it's just that maybe as a recent immigrant, I also, I also feel that this, this kind of. Which uh, shithole country are you from? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of those Slavic non-white countries, you know, um, basically, basically it's, it's, uh, um, it, it comes down to that. I think I'm 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 struck by the rhetoric now uh, about how Americans talk about Americanism and how, quite frankly, even this critique of Americanism has become racialized. Ultimately, you know, because what we have lost is this idea of, you know, when we talk about subsuming ourselves to an American identity, the immediate critique is that the American identity is unjust and is a product of white supremacy. Well. I think that's that's losing something. I I, I am I am yeah. no white supremacist, but if we're not saying, if we're not acknowledging that we're all becoming more American and less particular, I think America's failing in a different way at that point. Yeah, and I agree. So like what Beto said to those like new new immigrants or refugees that he spoke to like a couple of weeks ago, and there was some there was some debate about it, it didn't get a whole lot of attention. But I was actually really uncomfortable with it where he's talking to these people who are proud. They're excited. They wanted to come here because they, in some sense, believe in America in a way that maybe some white liberals don't believe in it anymore because we're sinful and original sin and all that, all that stuff. But he's like emphasizing white supremacy and we're just like we're bad in some we're just this is a badness like when you're talking to people who want to be here, can you, I'm just trying to think if my dad, when he came in the seventies and someone was like introducing him to America by talking about our badness, that my, my dad would be like, what the fuck? Yeah. No, again, I, you know, the, 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 um, naturalization ceremony, uh, you know me, I'm not, I'm not much of a sentimental person, but that was, that was really something that was really, really something. There was people here in DC in a DC court, literally people from all over the world rainbow, you know, white to black, Africans, Middle Eastern, uh, really remarkable. And, and, and there was something obviously aspirational about that, about wanting to become, wanting to not celebrate particularism, but to join something. And I, you know, my, my main thing in all of this is that it's not enough to say, uh, that this something is a fallen project just striving for an ideal and that its, uh, its success in the current moment is measured by how well we repudiate our sins. There has to be a more positive, a more unifying, and a more, yeah, you know, again, uh, um, uh, assimilationist element to it. To put it to put it in in terms that I think make people uncomfortable when you talk about assimilationism, it shouldn't be violent. It shouldn't be uh, racist. Uh, but there's we've lost. I, I I you know I just leave it at that. I think I think we've lost a certain kind of balance. Again, I would say like we have already become an ideal. Like this idea that the ideal is only somewhere in the future if we redeem and atone and yeah. all that stuff. I mean. Like America, uh, well, this is a cliche and I don't want to say it, but America is already great. Uh, that, that I guess Clinton sort of said that or thought that. And I would never say that if I was running for office because America 
feels difficult for a lot of people. And to say that, to kind of have this contentment or complacency about where we are, I think is problematic for anyone who is speaking to a larger audience. But we have already achieved something and we can, we don't have to atone to become that. Yeah. And um, that makes me like, I think, really, really uncomfortable. And that, that's, that goes back to because I am the child of immigrants, I just feel so incredibly, not to get like all sentimental, but that any of this was possible for me and my family shows that there is something beautiful about the American idea or the American project that is not in the future, it's in the present, or even like in my case, in the recent past, in terms of thinking about how my parents came here from like a pretty authoritarian country. I mean, that's not the reason they came here. But, you know, if I grew up in a place like Egypt, I would not be me, I would be someone else. Sure. You know, so... um so like we're not bad. We do bad things. Our our history is tragic, but we are not in some inherent sense a bad country or a bad society. No, right. Again, I it's it's uh yeah. I think it's important to keep that in mind. <laughs> All right, Shadi. Oh, wait, wait, uh, Demir, are you trying to get me? Are you I'm trying, trying to, like, I'm trying to get you out of my house? Out. I'm trying to kick you out. <laughs> I think I think we're done here, at least for now. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh yeah, thanks for listening. If you're out there, uh leave a you know, a comment on the page or a tweet at Shadi Hamid <laughs> on Twitter. Oh Leave me out of it, please. All right. Thanks a lot.